I'm Lynn Harder, host of Defining Moments, a podcast produced by WOUB Public Media. Humans are storytellers. We tell stories to make sense of birthing and dying and everything in between. This podcast features stories about health and healing. It grew out of my desire to disrupt the silence that too often surrounds vulnerability. Join me as guests and I explore what it means to live well in the midst of inescapable illness and hardship. Today I'm joined by Dr. Wayne Beach, a professor in the School of Communication at San Diego State University. Wayne is also director of the Center for Communication Health and the Public Good. He's authored over 100 publications, including two award-winning books. In 2018, he was acknowledged as a distinguished scholar by the National Communication Association. We're talking with Wayne about his research on cancer communication. His work relies on recordings of naturally occurring human interactions. These range from how patients, family members, and even healthcare providers talk through their cancer journeys. His work has been funded by the National Institutes of Health, the National Cancer Institute, and the American Cancer Society. What I find most compelling is how his work has resulted in translations for the public good. These have come in the form of theatrical productions and a recently completed documentary film that will premiere on PBS affiliates in October of 2020. Thanks for your work, Wayne, and and thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Lynn. Glad to be involved. Mm. So over the span of two decades, 20 years, your work has focused on family communication about cancer, as well as patient oncology interactions. From doing research to developing a play, based on people's stories to producing a film, across all of those projects, you've consistently positioned communicating about cancer as a major societal dilemma. In turn, you've developed research-informed educational resources. What I appreciated about your recently published piece in Health Communication, which is free and available to all listeners of this podcast, what I appreciate in that article is how you offer us a glimpse into the roots of your work. And you begin that article by writing, in 1990, a former graduate student knocked on my office door was carrying a shoebox filled with audio cassettes and said he had a story to tell. Okay, so you had me at that point, Wayne, in your article. (laughs) For listeners who haven't read your piece, I'm hoping you can share that story. I'm glad to. Uh, It was a defining moment and more uh, in retrospect than at the moment that it occurred, uh, which Mm. is often the case. Um, It's really a story I had to tell where something is not a priority at all until that something hits close to home and then becomes an urgent need to be addressed. Uh, Basically, this uh, former graduate student told me that um, his mother had recently died of cancer and that in the course of um, this cancer journey from diagnosis through her death, 
uh, he had recorded telephone conversations with his family members, care uh, service providers, and a variety of other people, all of which were aware of his recordings and gave permission. And that they wanted, they were aware of the work I was doing in health communication, and they wanted their mother, wife, sister's death to stand for something, uh, not only for uh, health education, but also just for their own uh, personal reasons because of their love for her. Uh, and I was very honored by this trust that they gave to me. And all they asked is that I uh, make it anonymous. I change any names in the audio recordings. And that I also uh, guaranteed that I wouldn't work on them for a few years to give it some space from the time of her death. So um, I did nothing with those materials but put them on the, uh, the shelf in my office I listened to maybe the first five minutes of the first recording where the father informs the son that the mom's tumor has been diagnosed as malignant. But mm -hmm. I uh, wasn't motivated for some reason to go to work on them. I had many other projects uh, sustaining me at the time. Uh, and they sat on my shelf and collected dust. And these were, by the way, original audio cassettes. Uh, not digitized, so they were in the form mm -hmm. of plastic, uh, you know, audio cassettes. And they literally collected dust in my office for eight years. But one day I received a phone call from my mother in Iowa, and she was diagnosed with cancer. And for the next four months until her death, uh, I was constantly involved in phone calls with her and other family members and medical providers, people in my uh friendship and acquaintance network, uh, my colleagues. And every time I got on the phone, especially with family members, this is in Iowa, I was reminded that here I was a son and a brother um, uh, talking on the telephone with family members about cancer. And I kept wondering what was in that shoebox in my office. And after my mother died, I went um, back home and immediately got to work on um, just finding out what was in the shoebox. It turns out that it was 61 phone calls over 13 months um, from diagnosis to death of a loved one. And um, as best I could tell, and it turned out in time, uh, it was the first natural history of a family talking through cancer on the telephone. So I wrote a proposal to the American Cancer Society to generate transcriptions and do initial publications from those. They didn't even have a category to put my work in because no one had ever requested that before. But nevertheless, they funded it as a unique research opportunity. And that launched an investigation that lasted over a decade of, um, of those phone calls. And uh, it was uh, obviously for me not coincidental that that happened that way. Sometimes it does, um, and sometimes it doesn't. But that's how the project got started. Hmm. What a gift that shoebox was to you. What a gift. And I, you know, if my mother was here, she would acknowledge what a gift. Not that she, of course, got diagnosed and died of cancer, but what I gained from that uh, was uh, a new sensitivity, in fact, a new sensibility about uh, how the day-by-day the -day contingencies of cancer actually get managed in communication, either long distance or face-to-face. -face. But, you know, I did travel back, and there was face-to-face -face encounters as well. 
but um, it was a gift that uh, I got from that because it, though I've never been diagnosed with cancer myself, uh, I can't claim that epistemic right and knowledge to speak to that. Uh, I have had many close friends and colleagues die of cancer and others be diagnosed that are to this day survivors. So I've had the opportunity to be able to um, uh, learn how to uh, uh, come to these with a sensibility that I didn't have before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So one of the hallmarks of your approach to research is close textual analysis. You did that with the 61 phone calls, this natural history of the progression of cancer, but you've also done that with patient oncologist clinical interactions. Mm -hmm. When you look at the body of your work, kind of analyzing and thinking with people as they communicate, what are some of the key themes that have emerged that, that are important? Well, it's, it's a great question, of course, and, and, and for the rest of the hour, we could just talk about uh, those, those details. Um, but in short, you know, uh, what I've learned is for me, and I think for many other people, the stereotypes that I had about communication and cancer are not just different, but quite radically different than what actually transpires when you have real recordings and transcriptions and you and you work in unison with both to engage in you know ongoing and repeated data sessions to try to really get a handle on the practices and the patterns that make those interactions up for example uh, in the family cancer phone calls it is clear to me that um, you know the stereotype is that cancer is about bad news but in these phone calls it's more uh, discussion about good news than bad news mm-hmm. um, it's more uh, focused on hope rather than despair. And it's more focused on life than death. Mm. Now, I never would have thought that uh, with these a priori stereotypes that I had about cancer. But, you know, whether we're looking at the relationship between good and bad news and, or how these family members really managed uh, life in times of crisis, uh, talk, you know, calling the airlines or living in this flux between stability of the disease and its ambiguity as it progressed, um, or living in a state of readiness, right? Not knowing uh, what the next phone call was going to bring or whether it was really focusing on how they shared commiserative space or um, delicate moments like the use of laughter and humor when coping with cancer. Throughout all of that, it was really in a larger framework of hope um, and uh, not just even if when they knew that she was going to die, uh, they taught me that hope is not just about um, uh, loss of physical life. It's about the mom's hope that the family mm-hmm. was going to do well without her and the family's hope for themselves that they have grown stronger through this cancer journey. And that was going to make a difference in, in their family lives and in their other relationships. Um uh, you know, those are teachings that I never would have gotten had I not dug into uh, the family cancer phone call materials. And then in the clinic, it's the same kind of thing. For example, let me give you three uh, very quick examples. Mm-hmm. Uh, one study, I went to make a collection of how sickness gets presented and talked out um, by cancer patients with their oncologists. What I came out with was a very large collection of cancer patients 
justifying their wellness and trying to convince doctors that that they're doing extremely well, well, even in the midst of terminal conditions. And I thought that was just fascinating. So I wrote that article on justifying wellness. Mm. Another example, laughter and humor obviously still occurs in the clinic, just like in the family cancer phone calls. But nine times out of 10, it's about managing delicate moments and trouble. Uh, and so the question then is, how does laughter and uh, how do laughter and, and humor get raised and how do doctors respond to that? Um, and, and that's something that I never would have understood. Uh, and then the issue uh, that I, I just finished a paper recently called Managing Stable Cancer News. You know, um, uh, uh, cancer survival is, is on the upswing, thank God. Uh-huh. But that means more and more patients are getting diagnosed with stable conditions. So no matter what chemo or radiation or other medical or surgical interventions are made, uh, they're working hard to keep the pathology stable. So your, your cancer isn't going away but it's also not improving. When doctors announce stable conditions to patients, overwhelmingly, they announce it as good news. But in all my data thus far, I don't have an instance where a patient treats stable news as good news. Mm. And it helps me to understand that what patients really want, of course, is cancers to shrink or to go away. They've gone through all these interventions, which can be painful and which can you know, change their lifestyles and change all sorts of things. Um, and to just do all that and to stay stable or even is very frustrating for patients. And so there's just one set of moments where you get an insight into how biomedicine and stability uh, kind of conflicts with lay diagnoses of, of your own condition. Um, and from there, you can just, you know, branch off into all sorts of other things. Uh-huh, uh-huh. In listening to you, I'm reminded of Laura Ellingson's work. Mm-hmm. I interviewed her in season one of Defining Moments, and she talked about her blog as a as a cancer survivor, and and she's also a communication scholar. It her blog is titled Realistically Ever After. Mm. She participated in in a feature length film by that same title, and. Her focus is really on shifting dominant cultural narratives about survivorship, where mm-hmm. we tend to to be seeking, right, as families, as people in those treatments, this happily ever after. And she really points to that need to shift toward a realistically ever after as a, a more stable understanding, if you will, right, yeah. that there are often long-term late effects of treatment or of the disease. And um, all of those, right, um, are often difficult for, for families and, and patients to comprehend when, when they're searching for that, okay, no evidence of disease, I'm done. <laughs> right. I think it is, uh, we're often in search of quick fixes for healing, aren't we? Um, and that's yeah. certainly true with the pandemic right now as well. Uh, you know, it's not going to go away. It's going to be around for a long time and in various phases and, and in various guises with various impacts. But I do think that um, cancer is increasingly becoming a chronic disease for many. Mm-hmm. And so as chronic, that means it's not going to go away. And for example, I have a friend and colleague right now uh, diagnosed with four stage breast cancer that has metastasized to her spine. 
but the doctors are convinced as a team that they can keep her alive for a normal lifespan. Uh, it's just that she's going to have to put up with constant interventions to keep it stable and not to lose mm -hmm. ground. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. the goal. And she has talked openly with me and others about, in fact, on a TED Talk, about letting, learning to let go of control and to put faith in her medical team because they understand things about it uh, that she does not. And that the worry and the anxiety and the fear that she had about uh, a potentially dreaded future um, uh, thus far hasn't come into uh, fruition. And so she's, she's, her struggle, her dialectical tension is to learn to let go of this control and trying to pre-specify a future that we don't have a crystal ball for anyway. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I think issues like stability and chronic disease um, need to be reframed, and for many people are. It just so happened in the collection that I built, I think I had 44 instances. Every instance, the, the patients responded to it as bad news. Mm, and okay. so, uh, you know, I think that could be solved, by the way, is at outset of, of uh, a diagnosis and treatment regimen. If doctors would describe to patients that it may well be possible, even probable, that the best we're going to be able to do with this particular set of health conditions is to keep it stable and that they should get their, their hearts and the minds around that so that mm -hmm. they can early on help to educate them that it's good news versus you know, a patient, I have a 68-year-old woman that comes in who's been through four months of chemotherapy and it's caused all sorts of problems in her life. And uh, she hears that, that uh, the doctor announces good news, it's stable. And she's extremely disappointed and starts crying and talks with the doctor about her disappointment. And that means that early on, he did not have a discussion with her and about the family members that, hey, that's a milepost for stability. Um, we can give you life. We can give you a really pretty good quality of life. Um, and maybe we ought to set our sights and our hopes on that. So that's just one little tip that doctors could mm -hmm. work on uh, mm -hmm. to try to alleviate what this recent study of mine showed to be a major disjuncture between patients and doctors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It strikes me that communicating around uncertainty is central to that and that that ambiguity is going to ebb and flow over the the course of um, the disease as it progresses and as the treatment interventions unfold yeah absolutely you know um, for years uh, bless his soul uh, Chuck Berger's uncertainty reduction theory I would argue with Chuck about the cognitive, perceptual, individualistic focus of uncertainty reduction theory. Um, and uh, if you knew Chuck at all, you'd know that it was quite a vociferous set of arguments. <laughs> but but uh, um, nevertheless, friendly and collegial and, uh, and so on. But when he got diagnosed with cancer, and of course he's recently died of cancer, when he got diagnosed with cancer, he started searching me out at conferences. And he had a very, very different orientation to managing uncertainty. And we've had many, we did have many long discussions, which were, you know, that was then uncertainty reduction theory. And this is now me as a cancer patient. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was fascinating for me to be involved in both sets of discussions. I think that uh, 
you know, again, the future has not been given to us to know. And I often say to my students that if you provided a crystal ball for them, would you use it? And it's interesting, the vast, vast majority of students would not use the crystal ball because if you knew the future was coming, it's not all good news. Um, it's not all bad news either, but it kind of takes so much of the fun and joy of living away unless you deal with massive, massive uncertainties. What's dealing uh, happening now, I mean, with cancer, it's one of the, if not the top, one of the top health fears in America. And it's fearful because you just don't know what it's going to do. With the pandemic stress, that's happening in the same way. And if you look at frontline health providers and all the work that they're doing and first responders, suicide and prevention, um, you know, uh, suicide and depression, excuse me, are on the rise. Mm -hmm. uh, extremely so. And a lot of the people that um, uh, spoke before they di uh, died um, uh, or colleagues that reported after these, their conversations, uh, they basically said that, you know, I don't want to face an uncertain future and constantly have to deal with, for example, um, being at the bedside of a patient and with FaceTime being the conduit between that dying patient and their family members. And going through, you know, that kind of grief on top of my clinical, um, uh, you know, skills put to use to try to help this person out. And so, mm -hmm. you know, uh, it's, it's uncertainty is omnipresent, so it's omnirelevant. And it's mm -hmm. always been there and it always will be. But when it comes to us wanting to control the future and we can't, I think that's when we become anxious and fearful and just downright scared. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that um, cancer is a classic example of that, but it's not limited at all to cancer. It's really about um, many, many, if not all, uh, illnesses and diseases. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And flip that, not just from the patient and the family perspective, but from the healthcare provider. When I think about the work that I do at our medical school, I think a key challenge as students progress through um, their preclinical training and then move on to their residency is how to engage in clinical reasoning and be willing to make decisions in the midst of sometimes inescapable uncertainty, that you do the best you can as a care provider with the knowledge that you have based on the generalities of science, but mm -hmm. that is always going to be lived in the particular circumstances of a patient's life um, and, and the environment in which they live and the resources that they have. Mm -hmm. And um, for physicians too, Right, still being able to exercise reason in the midst of that uncertainty, that's a burden to bear as a care provider. It's a massive burden, and uh, it doesn't always go well. You know, it just does not always go well uh, for any of the participants in clinical encounters. Um, in an early NIH study we did, we found that um, patients that came in to uh, oncology interviews, very uncertain, initiated more questions and were more uh, assertive as patients. But surprisingly, at least at first for us, 
they came out even more uncertain because what happened is that their questions weren't answered or weren't answered effectively or sufficiently. And one of the things we found as a way to deal with those problems is that, uh, and it only happened in 5% of the doctors and clinical encounters that we video recorded, is that on the rare occasion that a doctor says to a patient, there's going to be a lot of uncertainties and a lot of things that we don't know about and I will not know about, but I promise you I will be your partner through this and our partnership will be there no matter what comes our way. And patients reported that that is one of the most powerful statements they ever get from a doctor. They acknowledge the uncertainty first. Second, they acknowledge that they don't always, they're not always going to know what the answers are. And third, that no matter what happens, they're going to partner with them through that, through that journey. So, you know, that's something that could, that's very teachable and mm-hmm. could make a big difference and even begin to change the face of medicine. Because I think when the more hurt we are and the more scared we are, the more we want people to be there with us. And I remember uh, uh, Bill Stanton at Scripps Health in San Diego, the dean of oncologists, once told me that he had given, he'd learned long ago to give all his patients his cell number 724. And that while most didn't call, they knew that they could, and that made a huge difference. And -hmm. those that called needed him, and he knew uh, that that was important. And so he expanded his relationships beyond the clinic proper. So, you know, there are ways to deal with uncertainty, and there are ways to enhance the quality of relationships that we have. But they're not always apparent, and they're certainly not often taught uh, in medical schools. Mm -hmm. So what I find really powerful about your work, um, the research questions that you pose through your rigorous engagement uh, with the stories, the, the communication interactions that unfold between people, there are clear, movable ideas from that work that um, are low-cost, low-tech right interventions in in the spirit of fostering humanizing care. Um, so when I read your recent HealthCom article, it was it was heartening to to see you reflect on the another defining moment, if you will, for yourself when you took a turn towards translational scholarship. And and for least for listeners who haven't read your piece, um, there's a quote that I found really compelling. That and I'm going to read that really quickly. You write, "It is a defining moment to recognize that our research discoveries and basic knowledge about family cancer require translation to positively impact persons' lives." Putting that recognition to work requires building intervention strategies and health campaigns. Effective programs require careful assessments of how best to access lived experiences, create catharses, motivate behavioral change, and accomplish these goals by touching diverse community members in meaningful and sustaining ways. End quote. So all of the examples that you've been giving uh, given here, um, all of those kind of illustrate translational research. But I think that's a term that um, 
some listeners are unfamiliar with, translational research generally and, and entertainment education more specifically, one form of translational work that you that you engage in. Can you talk to us about how you understand that and what motivated you to, to turn in that direction? Yeah, no, I'd be glad to. And thanks for bringing that up. Um, with the family cancer materials, when I when I received the grant, initial grant from the American Cancer Society, uh, after I had built up some publications uh, and transcribing was done, I, as part of my grant from ACS, I was going out into the community and literally doing listening or what we call data sessions with, you know, cancer patients and survivors and family members and nurses and doctors and medical teams. Um, and uh, in the course of doing that, uh, people increasingly criticized me for, um, I mean, they found the materials extremely engaging and powerful mm-hmm. and translatable for their own experiences, but they, they rendered a, a criticism that was fair. And the crit- criticism was, wh- how are you going to make these materials available to the general public? Mm-hmm. Don't, you know, mm-hmm. rather than the silo of, of journal articles and chapters and books uh, and grants, and it was a fair criticism, and it got me thinking about, you know, how to do that. And what I learned by um, translating the phone calls into a theatrical production was, and this is really speaking directly to entertainment education, is that the more authentic the materials, the more the audience members um, suspend disbelief and are willing to get on board and consider significant change. And so every word in the 80-minute theatrical production is drawn verbatim from all the phone calls. There's not a word in there that doesn't come originally from the actual family members. Uh, But I ended up being, uh, you know, the playwright. I didn't plan on doing that. Uh, But after 80 minutes, people can come in and they can uh, watch a a full cancer journey from diagnosis through death of uh, a member of a family. And they can then have that triggered through post discussions and talkback sessions. And that's a very powerful thing because, um, you know, I've sat in over a hundred of those over the Mm -hmm. years and I have been the the best recipient and sponge just listening to the power of, of how people's stories are triggered. One woman said early on in phase one, she said, you know, Uh, I've had cancer for three years. I've kept all my family out of it, including my three children, because I didn't want to put a burden on them. But after watching this production, I'm going to go home and I'm going to invite them into my cancer journey because I realize that I need them. And more importantly, they need me and that family is doing this together. Now, um, you know, I, I was just struck by that. And it was just a very powerful poignant comment. And uh, I've heard thousands of those. And so, you know, when cancer calls is very powerful that way, because it's a triggering device to get people to talk about things that have been sensitive or delicate or denied or repressed. And then they realize from other audience members comments and talkback sessions that they're, they're not the only ones that have gone through that. And they and they have a forum, an environment mm-hmm. to speak more openly about it. On the the side of the documentary film, um, A Journey Through Breast Cancer, what happened with that as a translation is that I'd been videotaping for years single oncology interviews. 
uh, and had, you know, had over 200 of those. And that's a very powerful, uh, one-of-a-kind corpus of materials. But one, one day, uh, I video recorded a 37-and-a-half-year-old woman who five, six years ago had been diagnosed with breast cancer, and it had come back. And it had come back with such aggression that it was clear from the discussion with the oncologist that there was little that could be done with it. And um, after that encounter, and there was, there was an amazing a combination of laughter and crying uh, in that, which I still need to pull together and study because I, I do have a collection on crying. I've done work on laughter, but when laughter and crying co-occur, I want to get a better handle on why that's the case. And this is just extremely rich for that. But after that encounter, I often wondered, well, what happened to that patient? Did she die? Did, did, was she referred to other uh, clinicians? Did she do return visitations with this oncologist? And I, I set myself to, uh, to go after the possibility that I could take a patient and a family member or family members and I could trace their cancer journey from diagnosis through wherever it went. And indeed, that's what happened with, with uh, uh, a journey through breast cancer. Um, and uh, we were fortunate to be able to have the resources to do it and the team to pull it off. But um, that's how that translation got started. And, you know, it's just starting to be shown, but I think it's extremely impactful and hopefully will touch many people's lives in, in meaningful ways um, because it's not just about the fight at the molecular and cellular level that we're dealing with with cancer. Uh, I think comp uh, communication is equally complex to biomedicine, and a lot of my cancer um, bench lab researchers argue with that. But uh, my comment to them is, hey, in many ways, we're beginning to cure cancer and getting on top of that. We're not curing communication in the world. And if mm. we could, we would. So mm. just perhaps communication is, is as complex, if not more so, than cancer itself. Mm. So, um, you know, that's... There's two stories, and sorry to be long-winded, about how I really got launched into translation. But one was a critique that was, uh, I thought, well-rendered by people in the community. And the other was me feeling that with single oncology interviews, I just wasn't telling the fuller story where you could show over time, as we do in the film, you know, for example... One day, the, the first medical encounter, the breast cancer patient and her husband, Noel and Grant Dean, um, were very stoic and unemotional in their first encounter with uh, Ann Wallace, a breast cancer uh, surgeon and head of the Breast Health Center at UCSD in La Jolla. But we videotaped them two nights later in their home, and they were extremely emotional, very fearful of dying, and kind of... Uh, had righteous anger about why this had happened to them. And I started realizing that, you know, what happens to us in our natural history is not just, should not be contained to a medical encounter or to a home, but to the way we move in and out of settings with multiple participants and longitudinally over time. And, you know, that we followed Noel, um, uh, for three and a half years. And uh, we have 167 hours of raw footage. Uh, I think 26 participants across 17 settings over that period of time. And we all had, we had to put that all into a 56 minute, uh, one hour program. Uh, 
uh, for uh, PBS. Um, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. we have that corpus and it sits there. I just think that we have not told the full story longitudinally of natural histories in our work, largely because it takes time and money. But I think the vision and, and the foresight for doing that has not been what it should be. And so we get little snapshots, little tiffs and JPEGs of scenes and settings and encounters and interactions um, and stories and experiences, but that's just not the way you and I live our lives. So can we map, can we map the way we live our lives into uh, rigorous, informal, at the same time, natural histories uh, of, of uh, people's lives and then trace the patterns of those communications across uh, time, etc. Uh, you know, I, I've started to do that. I, I, I think I need 10 careers. One isn't enough. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a beautiful thing. I, I tell my students on a regular basis, I'm pretty sure that my inbox will still be full when I leave this earth and, and that's okay <laughs> because it, it will be a good tired. Um, and, and it will be a, a life that, um, was, uh, well lived through projects that were meaningful, right a- across that. So here's to ten careers. Uh, here's to for ten you careers. And look what you've done already with defining moments. I mean, it's oh. it's incredible. And um, you know, the term defining moments is for some reason not a term that I really thought about or reflected on. But since um, you asked me to get involved. Um, it's recurring. I mean, it, it just it allows mm. so much um, uh, insight into the fact that recurring moments are often defining. I, I'm getting to the point where I'm wondering in life what the opposite of a defining moment is. <laughs> I guess it depends mm. upon how reflexive and tuned in you are, but um, uh, it doesn't seem to have an opposite depending upon your point of view. But I know that's a longer discussion. Yeah. Uh, In your article, I appreciated your framing of those moments that are defining as the telebattles. Is it? uh, Telebattles. Yeah, telebattable. Right. Um, And that's not static. It it shifts over time and it shifts across narrator and the context in which the story is being told. Mm -hmm. Um, All of those impact it. So the story, a, a journey through breast cancer, I, I want to dig a little deeper into that because I, I'm grateful that you um, shared a, an early uh, copy of that with me. And I was immensely um, touched by it. I found it uh, haunting and hopeful at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like I said, with a graduate student who shared those uh, cassette tapes, the the 61 recordings, uh, what a gift that Noelle and her family and her team of care providers have offered the general public um, in sharing uh, a journey that's characterized by pretty profound vulnerability, um, yes. some extraordinary moments, but also a lot of mundane moments, right? Yes. Which... Um, are still still ever present in in the cancer journey. You just just beautifully rendered story of Noel. Like you said, there there are tremendous amount of settings from 
tumor board meetings, surgical theaters, where you're actually seeing that surgery take place, the clinical exam room, the kitchen table, right? The Skype phone calls. Um, so there's a diverse array of settings. There's various people who populate the film. Uh, Dr. Ann Wallace, um, the surgeon and director of the Breast Cancer Center, um, and, and a whole team of providers, including MRI technicians, neighbors, cancer survivors. Um, you were the principal investigator, writer, executive producer of that film. Um, can you talk to us about uh, what your role looked like um, over the course of that three years um, on a day-to-day -day basis in, in production and in post-production of, of that film? Yeah, sure. You know, um, a friend and colleague of mine is Tim Powell, who is uh, at our, uh, for SDSU, uh, our award-winning Emmy filmmaker, right? And so um, I started talking with him about he'd made a wide variety of documentary films, but I, I raised the question, what would it look like if we did it over time with breast cancer? And we emphasized the power and the importance of communication. And he thought it was a great idea. And when, uh, you know, and it worked its way through up through the hierarchy in the, in the Morris Cancer Center at UCSD. Um, and they agreed that we would use their clinic and their patients and their providers, um, their space. But, you know, how courageous was that? Because we, we didn't make a commitment that if, for example, there were radical critiques of poor care, that we were going to necessarily hold those out of the film. And mm -hmm. the cancer clinic understood that. It turns out it was just the opposite. Uh, Noel and Grant uh, thought that it was just, uh, they received superlative humanized care. And I agree with that, having watched it up close. Um, but, you know, once, once we got started, I had to, uh, my role was to determine what incidents and what events as they chronologically emerged over time, should be recorded, and how we could realistically do that with the time and the resources that we had. And uh, at the same time, um, eventually it was my role to, to integrate the excerpts out of 167 hours of raw footage. It was extremely painful for me to be able to say, here's 20 seconds we need, here's a minute we need, here's 40 seconds we need. Because in my opinion, there were so many good moments. And so I had to learn in my role how to tell a different kind of story um, that was not just poignant, but that was true to the unfolding nature of the events themselves. Uh, and sometimes I would select an excerpt, for example, that um, people thought I shouldn't include, and I'll give you an example of one. Uh, when Noel went into surgery, and by the way, Noel and Grant talk about also being extremely courageous. You know, when they agreed to this, there was no guarantee of an outcome for mm, her, her okay. cancer. Um, and had she, God forbid, uh, become uh, terminal with cancer and gone through all those um, serial productions of, of moving toward death and dying, um, they would have been just as open and receptive to us videotaping. But they weren't, you know, it didn't happen that way. But she, she said, no, you've got to 
videotape the full surgery because that's part of the story. Now, we only used a little bit of it, but we do have the full surgery. But when they got out of surgery, here's a story. Um, Grant was interviewed. 10 minutes, 15 minutes after she got out of surgery, he spoke with Ann Wallace, and Wallace said it went really well and the cancer hadn't spread. And we're interviewing Grant, and he reported it, it went great, uh, it hadn't spread. And right at that moment, he broke down and just started crying and sobbing. And in the midst of doing that, he said, I have been so scared that the cancer had spread. And I've been waiting for this moment to be able to hear that it hadn't spread, and I'm just so relieved. And, you know, uh, we have that in the film. It was retained, and it was so powerful, and it is so powerful. But this is kind of like a novel with a plot that's, that mm, couldn't uh -huh, uh -huh. be better or worse. Uh, the very next day, the pathologist found from smaller samples that, in fact, the cancer had spread, and it had gone uh -huh, to the uh -huh. And so within a day uh -huh. or two, Ann Wallace had to... Um, you know, call them in and say, you know, I, I didn't think that it spread, but it had. And then we get to see how Noel and Grant deal with the fact that the good news they thought they had is maybe not so good. Now she is required to go through a radical chemotherapy before a single breast cancer reconstruction. And those were moments that, you know, are, are just priceless and they tell the true story. And all the people were involved in wanting to produce those moments because that just tells the, the nature of the story itself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As a viewer, uh, I, I felt with Grant when he expressed that relief. Yes. And my stomach dropped with Dr. Wallace as, as you, on film, she receives the news that those initial tests were, were incorrect. And, in, in real time, viewers are watching a healthcare provider process through sharing and resharing news that has shifted, right? Yes. From what was initially, um, what would have been a better, right, treatment protocol, an easier treatment protocol. So to see her process through that and then have that conversation with the family, I think viewers are are invited into experiences that otherwise are oftentimes opaque to our common sense. They're far removed. And I think in a way that only films can, and this is different than academic journal articles, where even if you are the best of writers and you're a poetic writer and, and you are capable of um, using the alphabet to the best of your ability to convey the experience of, of suffering. When you see that in audio visual material, the tangible sounds, right? Yeah. Um, you, you hear the hum of the MRI machine you see bodies that are moving in space and bodies that are smiling and laughing and breathing mm -hmm. together, right? Mm -hmm. It palpably kind of resonates with people in a way that most journal articles do not. It is embodied uh, in real time. And of course, that's hard to capture 
And I must say, you know, I'll be teaching virtually this coming fall at SDSU. I've never taught uh, online courses before, and I'm just wondering how to share those video materials with patients and teach them to analyze them and understand them virtually. So, you know, I think the, the challenges go on um, because I've done it very successfully uh, live in face-to-face -face classroom interactions. But, uh, you know, that's just another hill to climb, I guess, and I'll figure it out a uh, way to do it. But, uh, you know, I, I would love to be uh, a fly in the wall listening to uh, people in their living rooms, uh, breast cancer patients and family members and medical providers, uh, hopefully after watching the documentary film, talking about what difference that may have made for them. And over time, I'd love to be able to assess uh, how or if that has made their lives more set up to improve communication uh, and to support and commiserate with one another over time. Um, we did that in, in, with NIH funding for uh, when cancer calls. I don't know if we'll be able to do that with a journey through breast cancer, but um, you know, I'm new to this filmmaking stuff, Lynn, and, and you, mm -hmm. you've been at it for a while. So, uh, you know, uh, you can teach old dogs new tricks. What the heck? You know, neither one of us were trained as filmmakers and I, I wouldn't trade that. I wouldn't go back. Um, but it is different to enter into that process with other people who have um, a different set of skills than you do. Um, I firmly believe that um, being positioned as a communication researcher and for you having been in these contexts for two decades doing systematic research that builds over time, I have no doubt that those theoretical sensibilities and that that research informed the process of filmmaking and, and the, the ultimate product. I, I hope you're right. I believe you're right. Um, what I'm struck with is uh, the old adage, the more you know, the more you know there is to know. Mm -hmm. uh, and now I see materials and I see scenes and everyday life encounters. And I think, you know, what if, right? What if we went after that and did a documentary on those? Um, it's truly endless. The world becomes a laboratory in that sense. Um, and I guess I'm seeing it now from both the perspective of a filmmaker, but also a person who works with audio and video materials. Uh, and it's it's never ending because it's all uh, it's all extremely interesting to me uh, across diseases and illnesses and across cultures. Um, you know, I'm leading up a big project called a Big Ideas Project on campus with uh, 11 faculty members across eight disciplines focusing on pandemic stress, and we're just getting started. Um, uh, but you know, it leads me to realize that if you don't take the step toward a big vision, then you can't take the initial uh, step to begin to climb uh, that mountain. And there are such social problems out there. Uh, and in our discipline and across disciplines, we have such skilled people that are intuitively uh, in touch with the world on its own merits, that if we can just form those collaborations, you know, all Paradigm shifts always occur on the periphery of disciplines, right? I not not within the center of the discipline itself, and I, I I hope that the kind of work that we're both doing and others can 
help to create new paradigms that can, you know, begin to be seen as possibilities uh, and probabilities from the time we start training undergraduates uh, on up through uh, graduate school and beyond. Hi, folks. Len, breaking in for just a second. We've been talking to Dr. Wayne Beach, an award-winning teacher and author at San Diego State University. We've been talking about his work on cancer-related communication, um, his research that begins with the naturally occurring communication interactions across time and across the lifespan of a journey through cancer. On our Facebook page, we provide a link to Wayne's recent article in health communication. And in that article, he talks about his turn toward translational scholarship in the form of theatrical performances and documentary films. Okay, back to the conversation. I think it's something that's really important for us to wrestle with as as we continue to advocate for more uh, translational scholarship. So there's a difference when you develop a, a theater performance and it's based on the stories and communication between family members, but the identities of those family members um, remain anonymous. And, and that's consistent with institutional review board guidelines. When we're talking about audiovisual translational work, those individuals on the screen are alive and breathing and you see them and you see them in their homes with their families. How does that shift your role as a, res as a researcher and as someone who ultimately helps to create a story that, that they're a part of and their identities are constructed in that process? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. And, and it's uh, um, something that I'm learning uh, more and more about as time passes. Uh, I was surprised to know at the outset, once we got clearance from the Cancer Center to move forward, that when, when uh, I submitted an application to our IRB that documentary filmmaking uh, was exempt. Mm -hmm, that it, mm -hmm, wasn't, mm -hmm. it wasn't treated as research. And as a result of that, um, uh, I mean, I, because it had been, you know, uh, the, the clinical work had been funded by NIH and that had been, you know, reviewed uh, and so on. I thought, well, I better just move forward. Um, despite the filmmaker saying, no, that, that was, that's exempt. We don't need to worry about that. So it was exempt, but of course we committed in our filmmaking team, uh, we built consent forms based on what the filmmaker had used before and adapted it to the contingencies of this plan. Um, and so we have, uh, signed consent forms from every person whose face appears on the film. And in that consent form, it stipulates that, you know, all the details that are, are ethical and even moral in some cases about the fact that we have an obligation as filmmakers to report uh, what we see as relevant and true. Um, but if you feel that there's something that we would bring up that you feel very strongly about should not be there, uh, you have the right uh, to, to speak directly with the filmmakers and we will reach consensus about how best to handle that. And that, yeah. and we never had, we never had any issue brought up by 
the medical team or the family or the community members uh, on any issue at all. And that's true mm-hmm. even after they saw earlier versions of the film. So I guess we were fortunate in that sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the video consent form um, makes available their story. And, and Noel and Grant, they, they uh, committed to this project within five minutes when I described it to them. And mm-hmm. they just looked at each other and said, you know, if we're going to go through this, wouldn't it be nice if our experiences and our lives could be used to benefit others. Uh, She was a behavioral therapist. He's a research scientist. They both felt, and in their own relationship, that communication was extremely important. And on that basis, they said, we're we're on board. And uh, Mm -hmm. I was kind of floored because I didn't even fully know what that would mean um, and uh, that it would go on so long. I mean, I was just really naive, and, and there's a beauty to being naive with these projects, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, ethically, I, I think that uh, in both Win Cancer Calls and A Journey Through Breast Cancer, I've learned that the community is used to living those details, to being involved in those settings and organizing those topics and facing those challenges. And I've learned also that people in, in the real world um, don't value toned down versions of it. They, they value truth and honesty within limits, of course. Um, mm-hmm. And so our commitment as researchers to naturally occurring material can be also carried over to audience members from their perspective because, you know, you're not going to tell a breast cancer patient who's been through these phases of diagnosis and treatment and, and on out through remission or whatever um, that, you know, you don't, don't put false worlds or fake worlds in front of them because they've lived it. And so uh, the, the feedback we're getting from these projects is that people highly value uh, the ethical and moral, and in some cases, even the spiritual commitments that are reflected in just trying to tell a story about other people's stories in real time mm-hmm. and knowing mm-hmm. for well that, you know, those people committed to doing it. And yeah. so yeah. Um, if you don't like the way the family dealt with it and when cancer calls, in the talkback session, you can, and people do argue with what that family did, but you can't deny that it was that family's right to deal with cancer the way they wanted to. Uh, and so coming, you know, coming to grips with naturally occurring and residing within that, I think is, is a, a very powerful way to deal with ethical and other issues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Wayne, What's next for you? What's what's on the horizon for for you, for the center that you direct at San Diego State, the Center for Communication, Health, and the Public Good? Oh well, um, I, I you know it's a great question, and and I hesitate because now that the world is uh, facing a pandemic crisis, um, for example, planning for the center. Uh, with mm-hmm. events um, is all kind of put on hold, and we don't know uh, what the what. I mean, this whole next academic year, I think, is going to be put on hold, uh, and mm-hmm. it was just really gaining momentum. Um, but I do think that we will continue to interface between community uh, health issues and what communication research can do to address those in innovative ways. Uh, I know that. Um, 
the, I, I mentioned the, the pan pandemic stress uh, project that's unfolding. Um, you know, uh, we want to show how stress impacts cancer, diabetes, heart disease, and we want to do it in a transforming way. But something like the pandemic stress is, is going to always be there in some capacity, including Black Lives Matter and all the riots and all the peaceful movements that are about, uh, you know, going on right now, which are so unsettling and at the same time hopeful, as you stated, because there is a substantive change that's hopefully underway. So we're always going to have stress about something. And so I think that that's on the horizon. Um, you know, I have... Uh, so many projects with collections built from my video oncology materials um, that I really want to go after um, and just haven't had the opportunity to do that. So uh, those are going to, I think, be on my radar. I'm um, co-editing a, a book from all the studies that have published been published out of those uh, video recorded materials with uh, a doctor, uh, Ezra Cohen, at the UCSD Morris Cancer Center, because it shows how a partnership has led to dozens of publications. And hopefully we can uh, have a format where for each chapter, for example, the first paper we did on cancer fears um, will be read by an oncologist, and then they'll have an opportunity in the book to respond to the chapter, to talk about what they understand and don't, and then to, in their own way, uh, translate that chapter to, to tell other doctors and healthcare providers what they can do from their own experience to deal with it. So uh, that that book is underway, um, also kind of on hold because of, of COVID-19. Um, you know, I just don't have, I have an endless list, Lynn, and uh, it's, it's, just, um, it's just nice to know that whatever I go after, I, I will only go after it at this point in my career if I'm really uh, enticed by it and impassioned by it and excited about it. And that's really, uh, you know, it makes my work easy because anything that doesn't fit on that radar, I just don't go after anymore. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, there's, there is no aspect of our living together, relating, organizing, advocating that has went untouched by the coronavirus. Um, I was including our, our research and yes. yesterday afternoon I was in a session at our med school. Uh, we have a narrative medicine program and there was a small group of us, uh, three facilitators, a, a medical practitioner and I, and an external consultant and several, several um, students who are entering uh, into the second year of med school. And one of the the things that emerged in our conversation that has lingered with me over the past 24 hours, one of our, our students, Amanda Martinez, and then another one, China Smith, who kind of riffed with her about this. It started because I said, you know, 2020, at the beginning of this year, I, I was turning 50 and my husband and I were having our 25th wedding anniversary. And right, it just seemed like a defining right transition into this this third act of our lives and it in no way has been what we expected and amanda said you know when i think about 2020 i think about 2020 vision and mm. china said 2020 vision is 
right? Clarity. And maybe what the slowdown, and in some cases, shutdown, maybe what has been made possible is that things have been laid bare that have existed, but we have not seen clearly. We haven't had that 2020 vision. Mm -hmm. So health inequities that have existed have Mm -hmm. been revealed and amplified Mm -hmm. through COVID. Um, Mm -hmm. Certainly systemic racism Mm -hmm. that perhaps 84% of Americans in recent polls would not say they believe that the protests are justified if if the slowdown and the the shutdown had not been coincidental right mm-hmm. because it, it's life has been paused and and we have time and space to reflect and and sometimes in the tempo of life we don't so our conversation went on to think about in in healthcare and beyond, how can we think about 2020 vision as opportunity to pause and see more clearly mm-hmm. and, and, and act on that, whether it's we see clearly that our health system was not equipped for a pandemic, um, mm-hmm. that we didn't have uh, personal protective equipment that we needed, right? All of the things that existed, but, but we weren't clear in that vision. And um so amen to to not really knowing what our next year is is going to look like. Um amen indeed um you know um a lot of creativity, a lot of innovation, um a lot of appreciation of home and family and health have arisen because of this. And I think of all the, uh, you know, systemic racist issues that have been there for hundreds and hundreds of years coming to the fore in what's happening with George Floyd and many other uh, terrible incidents. I think what happened is that in culture, uh, many, many people, because of the quarantine, the pandemic, they just lost their patience. You know, they lost their tolerance threshold to put up with events and situations and as a result of that, um, uh, it just it just made it more combustible, and it made it more uh, worthy of pursuit. And I'm and I think that is a positive. Not that that these people have been injured and, and killed, of course, but that that finally we can make hopefully substantive change. We have an extremely volatile uh, White House. We have many many things going on. People are uh, losing their patience. So I think that's good. Hopefully then the lives that have been lost are not as easily forgotten. Yes. No, I I just hope and pray for substantive change over time. Uh, And uh, people are discerning with greater insight and depth of of acuity what's right and what's wrong in our our, uh, nation. And, and globally. And I think that in the end will, will benefit us all, uh, however painful mm-hmm. it is to get there. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's a tough time. And uh, despite the silver linings, uh, we're not over yet. And, um, you know, we just, but humans are survivors. And uh, 
we are survivors. And so we'll make the best out of what's uh, made available and uh, utilize the resources that we have. And I've tried to learn how not to complain uh, as much because, you know, I feel I'm so blessed with being able to have uh, the resources that I have throughout um, all these trying times. And perhaps we all could uh, try to do that more because, um, you know, we're, we're in a very privileged position to be able to, mm-hmm. I mean, here we are in the midst of all this doing this podcast and having a, a wonderful discussion. And uh, I mean, what a gift that is. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, mm-hmm. it's not ideal, but then again, uh, we always grow um, uh, most in, in the midst of our difficult challenges. Wayne, thank you so much for taking time uh, to join us to join us today. For our listeners, um, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Defining Moments. Defining Moments podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media and the Barbara Gerald's Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. Adam Rich is our co-producer. You can subscribe to Defining Moments at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or the NPR Podcast Directory. If you haven't done so, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at DM Podcast W-O-U-B. As I noted earlier, on our Facebook page, we provide a link to Wayne's recent article in Health Communication. For your convenience, that's on our Facebook page as well as our Instagram and, and Twitter. We hope that you will take the time to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. As always, please go in peace and love one another.